0: You know, I hope you had the opportunity over the holidays to binge watch your favorite Netflix shows while you had some time off. I'll admit that I engaged in a little bit of binge watching myself. I love the historical documentaries found on Netflix, and lately I've been into the World War II era, and war makes for some strange bedfellows. I find it interesting how the U.S., Britain, and France allied with the Soviets in World War II. We didn't trust them. We didn't share intel, we certainly didn't like Stalin, but the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And as we're going to see in a moment, World War II made for some strange bedfellows here at home as well. You may be surprised to learn that before the U.S. entered the war, there was a vast network of Nazi sympathizers in America, out in the open, especially in New York City. Their goal was to liberate America from what they saw as the nefarious Jewish influence and encourage Hitler in his anti-Semitic endeavors. They held open public meetings, and since Nazi Germany had not yet been declared an official enemy of the United States, there wasn't much anyone could do about it. Nazis had the right to free speech and public assembly just like everyone else. So Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia was obligated to give them police protection in New York City, whether he liked it or not. But this didn't sit well with a local Jewish judge and politician named Nathan Perlman. He found the Nazis' activities to be repugnant and subversive, but he could find no legal means to stop them. So he decided to go outside of the law. Judge Perlman had an old rival named Meyer Lansky. Lansky was part of the New York City underworld. Americans have an interesting relationship with organized crime, don't we? The Italian mafia has been mythologized in movies like The Godfather. We've glorified real-life gangsters like Al Capone and Lucky Luciano. But in reality, the mob is brutal, uh, sadistic, and terrifying. And they were the bane of law enforcement, especially in the first half of the 20th century. But as we've mentioned, World War II made for some strange bedfellows. Meyer Lansky was a prominent figure in the Jewish Mafia. That's right, there was a Jewish Mafia. And the Jewish Mafia may have been the most brutal of all. Lansky founded the enforcement arm of the Jewish Mafia called Murder, Inc. And that's all you need to know about Meyer Lansky. He was a bad dude, he was a crook, and a murderer. And as a result, he and Judge Perlman crossed paths on many occasions. Perlman would try to put Lansky in jail, and Lansky would send his goons to intimidate witnesses by reminding them what was in their best interest. They were on the opposite sides of the law and just about everything else. But they did have one thing in common. They both despised the Nazis. So Perlman reached out to his old enemy for help. Now, it wasn't unusual for the United States government to enlist the mob's help. In ventures like this, Lansky and some other underworld figures helped the U.S. Navy secure New York Harbor, ...from Nazi saboteurs who were in business of blowing up American ships before they even left the docks. The U.S. government, of course, did not acknowledge this partnership with the Mafia for over 40 years. But Judge Perma knew that Lansky would help. Lansky himself had had tried to join the United States Army when he first heard about Hitler's atrocities in Eastern Europe. Lansky was of Polish descent, after all, but he was only 5 feet 4 inches tall and 40 years old, so he was promptly rejected by the army... But as it turns out, Lansky's criminal skill set would prove to be much more valuable to his government. Lansky knew how to hurt people, and he knew how to scare people, and that's exactly what Judge Perlman was looking for. So Perlman made a deal with Lansky. Perlman would volunteer information to Lansky concerning the whereabouts of prominent Nazi organizations in New York City. Lansky, in turn, would send in his thugs to reason with them. And as long as no one got killed, Judge Perlman would make sure law enforcement looked the other way. And my, oh my, did Lansky wail on some Nazis. Here is Lansky's own description of the disruption of a Nazi rally in Manhattan. He said, we got there that evening and found several hundred people dressed in brown shirts. The stage was decorated with a swastika and pictures of Hitler. The speaker started ranting There were only about 15 of us, but we went into action. We attacked them in the hall and threw some of them out the windows. There were fistfights all over the place. Most of the Nazis panicked and ran out, and we chased them and beat them up. And some of them were out of action for months. Yes, it was violence. We wanted to teach them a lesson. We wanted to show them that Jews would not always sit back and accept insults. In Lansky's interaction with the Nazis, He never used lethal force, per his agreement with Perlman, so guns were out of the question. The weapons of choice were baseball bats, iron bars, and other blunt, heavy objects, and they were used with vicious precision. There were a lot of broken bones, busted teeth, and cracked skulls, but no one ever died. Another Jewish mobster gives us a good description of how a Nazi meeting was broken up in Newark. He said the Nazi scumbags were meeting one night on the second floor Nate Arno, who was another mobster, and I went upstairs and threw stink bombs into the room where the creeps were. As they came out of the room running from the horrible odor of the stink bombs and running down the steps to the street to escape, our boys were waiting with bats and iron bars. It was like running a gauntlet. Our boys were lined up on both sides and started hitting, aiming for their heads or any other parts of their bodies with our bats and irons. Nazis were screaming blue murder. This was one of the happiest moments of my life. (laughs) So my question is, Who is the hero of this story? Well, certainly not the Nazis. They were the bad guys in every story. Those guys were racist, fascist, jerks, had no redeeming qualities. So how about Judge Perlman? Was he the hero? Well, I'm not sure we can call him a hero exactly. He circumvented the very law he was sworn to uphold to exact revenge. And so that leaves us with Meyer Lansky. Was he the hero of the story? As much as we may sympathize with his cause, we certainly can't justify his means, can we? We can't defend the brutality, nor can we turn a blind eye to the other misdeeds of his life. So we have a man who seems to be the placeholder for the hero of the story, but he's not quite a hero. Sometimes he's downright villainous, yet he's all we got. Sometimes you need more than a hero. Sometimes a hero just can't get the job done using heroic methods. Sometimes you need an anti-hero. We've seen this trend in modern fiction and entertainment, haven't we? In the old days, the hero wore the white hat and the villain wore the black hat. The hero always did what was right and the villain always did what was wrong. They were caricatures. But that just doesn't satisfy us anymore, we know that in real life, things aren't so cut and dry, and our stories reflect that. So today, we get quote-unquote heroes like Jack Sparrow, and Rick Grimes, and Tony Soprano, and Shrek, and Wolverine, and Punisher. We get bad guys who sometimes do good things, and good guys who sometimes do bad things. And this kind of anti-hero rings true to us today. The hero of the story, but not quite. Does heroic things, but lacks traditional heroic qualities. He's earthy, gritty, contradictory. In other words, it's kind of like us. It's getting more and more difficult to tell the good guys from the bad guys nowadays. But the antihero is by no means a modern concept. The Old Testament is rife with antiheroes who were used powerfully by God in spite of themselves. And chief among them was David. Try as we may to whitewash his image, the fact remains that David's life was stained by scandal and soaked in blood. Yet somehow, someway, he overcame the odds. He saved the nation, and he won God's heart. These are the chronicles of David, the antihero, of scripture. I'm going to ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16, or feel free to find it on your electronic device. 1 Samuel 16, if you don't have either of those things, you're welcome to pull out the Bible from the shelf underneath the pew in front of you. Turn to page 238, page 238. There's also some notes in your bulletin if you'd like to write some stuff down and follow along that way. Over the course of this series, over the next several weeks. We're going to see David do some truly heroic things. We're going to see him defend the weak and protect the vulnerable and make tremendous sacrifices to do what's right for his people. But at times we'll also see unbridled selfishness, blatant dishonesty, and unthinkable brutality. And this makes some people uncomfortable. Some folks want to justify everything that David does because scripture says that he was a man after God's own heart after all. But we can't be afraid to see David for everything that he is and everything that he isn't. No one can be a hero every time. No one always does the right thing for the right motives. And over the course of this series, we'll begin to recognize that we are not necessarily the heroes of our own stories. Like David, we are the antiheroes of God's story, and every antihero has a backstory, and we're going to see that in David here in First Samuel 16. Let's look at verses 1 through 13 this morning. It says this: The Lord said to Samuel, "How long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have." I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or his height or his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So what's going on here? Let's get caught up. Allow me to set the stage for this great epic saga. The year is approximately 1,000 B.C., and the nation of Israel is a mess. For centuries, they had suffered through attack after attack from brutal, godless, foreign enemies, and God would raise up leaders from among the tribes called judges to deliver the people. But the Israelites could never keep it together for any significant amount of time. They would fall into godlessness, idol worship, lawlessness, and debauchery over and over again. And on a few occasions, they were close to destroying themselves. So they asked God for a king who would keep them in line, keep them organized, and keep them from having to govern their own affairs. They basically got lazy. They wanted someone else to tell them what to do. Now, God knew that you can't entrust a man with absolute power. And through the prophet Samuel, he tried to talk them out of it, but the people weren't going to listen. So God reluctantly allowed them to choose a king. Let's go back a few chapters and look at Israel's first king, a man named Saul. First uh, Samuel 9, verses 1 through 2 says, There was a man of Benjamin whose who uh, name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. To go on to First Samuel chapter 10, it says, Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were opposing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. It goes on to say, then they ran and took Saul from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him who the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, long live the king can't help but hear the irony in Samuel's voice here. There was none like him among all the people. In some sense, that was true. Saul seemed like the obvious choice. He was handsome. He was tall. He was even wealthy. It sounds like a superhero to me, doesn't it? Batman, Iron Man, Green Arrow, all tall, handsome, and wealthy. But Saul was no hero. As a matter of fact, Saul was petty, jealous, disobedient to God, and as we'll see in the coming weeks, he was maybe a little insane. People had chosen poorly. Saul checked off all the boxes for a superhero, but that's not what God wanted. So in our passage today, God went about choosing the next king for himself. Yes, he would have some flaws, but he would be God's man, and that's the main point that we're going to see from our passage this morning. It's in your bulletin. The main point is men look for superheroes. God chooses antiheroes. Men look for superheroes. God chooses antiheroes. We see the same principle in the New Testament. The Pharisees worked hard to put on superhero personas. They had no obvious outward flaws. They were admired for their religiosity. They were the obvious choice to lead the nation, both spiritually and politically, and they were applauded by most men, but they weren't applauded by one man in particular, Luke sixteen fifteen, and Jesus said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart for what I exalted, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in God's sight. And that's the same message from our passage today, isn't it? God has told the prophet Samuel that he's going to replace Saul with one of the eight sons of Jesse who is a wealthy shepherd from Bethlehem. So Samuel sneaks into Bethlehem under false pretenses because he knows the kind of man that Saul is. Saul would kill him if he found out what he was up to. And Samuel invites Jesse and his sons to a religious ceremony where he will secretly anoint the next king of Israel. He will anoint the man that God indicates. And when he sees Jesse's oldest son, he's ready to anoint him Eliab is a carbon copy of Saul. He's tall. He's impressive looking. The most prominent of Jesse's sons checks all the boxes of a superhero. That's not who God wants. As a matter of fact, God passes on all seven of Jesse's sons who were at the ceremony. So Samuel asks Jesse if there's anyone left. Does Jesse have any sons who are not present? Well, someone had to stay behind and look after the sheep. And that was Jesse's youngest son, David. Samuel calls for David, who was just a boy at the time. The scripture describes him as ruddy and handsome. We don't exactly know what ruddy means. We know that it implies the color red, so David's probably just a fresh-faced, good-looking kid. He may not have had the, been maybe the impressive specimens that his older brothers evidently were, but he could hold his own. But none of that really mattered because God does not look at outward appearance. Literally, 1 Samuel 16, 7, that verse says in the original Hebrew language that men look with their eyes, but God doesn't. God looks at people with his heart. Now, I know your translation probably says that God looks at the heart, but there was no Hebrew prepositions here. We add them so the sentence makes sense to us in English. And the phrase, with his heart, just makes more sense in this context. Men don't look at the eyes, they look with their eyes. And likewise, God doesn't look at David's heart, he looks with his own heart. In other words, I don't think God was so impressed by what he saw in David's heart. Instead, God chose to connect with him according to his own heart. And we see from an earlier chapter that this is exactly the case. Take a look at 1 Samuel 13, 14. Jehovah hath sought for himself a man according to his own heart. See, God didn't find the perfect man in David. God didn't necessarily find a man of impeccable character. God didn't necessarily find a man whose heart was as clean and pure as the wind-driven snow. And that will become painfully obvious later in David's life. Instead, God simply found a man that he loved with his heart, despite that man being a real rascal sometimes. You see, this passage says more about God than it does about David. God chose David according to God's heart, not David's heart necessarily. God would stick with David, not because David's heart was always right, but because God's heart was. Was always right. For whatever reason, God chose to have a special relationship with David just because God is good, not because David was good. Does this sound familiar to you? 2 Timothy 1 9, Apostle Paul says, He, Jesus, has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. His heart, God has chosen to save you, not because your heart is so pure, but because he is so good. Apostle Paul says, Romans eleven five 5 through 6, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You are saved because of Jesus's perfect life. Jesus's death on the cross. Jesus's resurrection. By grace you are saved, not by your own work. So you can trust him right now. You are saved and have eternal life. See, this is the kind of relationship God is choosing to have with David. David wasn't a hero, certainly not at this time. David only had the courage to slay Goliath in the next chapters we'll look at next week because of what we see at the end of this passage. It says the Spirit of God rushed upon David at his anointing. And that made all the difference. But the time when God chose David, there's no superhero here. He didn't have the Spirit yet. David was more of an anti-hero. He didn't deserve his calling any more than we deserve ours for some reason, God just loved David, even though David was a mixed bag, just like all of us. It was God who chose to connect with David at the heart level, despite David's flaws. And that's good news for us, right? Normally we look at this passage and we think that God chose David because his heart, David's heart, it was so pure. And then we look at the dumpster fire going on inside of us We think we have no chance. We know that we can never fulfill the role of superhero. God isn't asking us to be the superhero. He's allowing us to be the anti-hero. And we can do that. You know, we can play the role of the reluctant rascal who gets inspired by the Spirit to do something great, right? We can play the role of Han Solo, right? That's doable, You see, we don't need to be great. We just need to be chosen by the Spirit of God to fill the role. And guess what? God has already chosen you to fill the role. In the Old Testament, the Spirit of God would come upon people from time to time to do a great work. And then he would leave. But in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us that the Spirit permanently fills all those who have faith in God. 2 Thessalonians 2:13 but we should always give thanks to God for you brethren beloved by the Lord because God because you've chosen God no because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. And again, he says, Ephesians 1 13 through 14, and you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. You are God's anti hero through faith. You don't have to work to be chosen, you might be pretty messed up on the inside. But God has chosen you by his grace anyway. The spirit is rushing upon you permanently and forever. So you don't have to do anything right now. We'll talk more about the actions of an anti-hero next week. But for now, we find our application in God's admonition to Samuel. And the application is this, and it's in your bulletin. The application is stop pretending to know where God's intending to go. Just stop pretending to know where God's intending to go with your life. The Apostle Paul says this about our inability to predict what God is going to do. Romans 11, 33 through 34, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways For who has known the mind of God or who has been his counselor? Certainly not us, right? Samuel was sure that he knew where God was going to go with his selection for this task. He was certain that he had figured out who God was going to fill this role with. God was not going to choose the little kid. Give me a break. He thought God was going to choose the full-grown man. If it were up to Samuel, then Saul would have been replaced by a carbon copy of Saul. It would have been the same story, different superhero. But God's prophet got it completely gone, got it completely wrong. We cannot pretend to know where God's intending to go with us. And what role he'll have us fill. We cannot pretend to know what God may call us to do in the future or what God may call someone else to do. Yet we do it all the time, don't we? Oh, you know, God would never call me to do something like that. Look, God has called a lot worse than you to do a lot more. Well, I'm not the hero type. Maybe not, but you are the anti-hero type. And that's exactly who God chooses to use all over Scripture. As a believer, you have the Spirit of God. That's all you need to fill the role. Now, that's not to say that you should just settle into your sin by any means. That's not to say that we should stop trying to become better people by any means. That's not to say that there aren't certain standards that need to be maintained for certain responsibilities, of course. But you can't pretend to know where God's intending to go with you well, I'm just not good enough to do that. Listen, if you're scared to do what you think God wants you to do, then don't try to hide behind your unworthiness. Just don't. Just admit that you're scared. God can work with that, but the false modesty stuff, that needs to go. And maybe we're lazy. God can work with that too. He can light a fire in you, so just admit it. But don't try to tell God what he should or should not ask you to do. We're not his counselor. If God has called you. Then he has qualified you for that particular work. End of story. 1958, Academy Award winning actress Ingrid Bergman starred in a romantic movie called The End of the Sixth Happiness. Ingrid Bergman was a tall, blonde, long-legged bombshell, and she played the role of Gladys Aylward, the British missionary who went to work among the Chinese in the 1930s. If you want to watch the movie, that's fine, but don't expect to find the truth in it. In reality, Gladys Aylward was four feet, 10 inches tall, and she never dated. But the true story of Gladys Bergman, or I'm sorry, Gladys Aylward, is much more compelling than in the movie with Ingrid Bergman. Gladys was born into poverty in London, England on February 24, 1902. She dropped out of school at a young age to earn a pittance as a domestic worker. Eventually, Gladys became a Christian and learned about the plight of the Chinese people who knew not Jesus and whose nation was at constant war with its neighbors. So at the age of 28, she enrolled in the China Inland Mission School to study to become a missionary. Now, if you want to become a missionary today, basically you join an organization, you raise the funds, and you go. But back then, missions work was a bit more exclusive, uh, almost prestigious. You had to be accepted into a mission society, and even upon your acceptance, you were not guaranteed to be sent as a missionary. You had to prove yourself through rigorous training. Well, Gladys was poor, barely educated, and she struggled to learn the Chinese language. And as a result, the school declined to send her to China. The diminutive, plain-featured woman was just not cut out for missions work. And for most people, that would have been it, right? But Gladys knew whom God has called He also qualifies. And so she simply refused to listen to those who pretended to know what God intended for her to go. So she saved up her own money, and at the age of 30, she bought a one-way train ticket to China. And it was not easy. She traveled alone across Russia on the Trans-Siberian Railway. She was detained by authorities. Russia, you see, was unofficially at war with China at the time. But she managed to escape, and she trudged on foot the rest of the way to China through the snow, dodging the bullets of the Russo-Chinese war. She eventually partnered with an elderly missionary woman who ran a roadside inn, and she shared the gospel with the Chinese mule drivers who frequented the business. But the war had not been kind to the Chinese people. Their country had been ravaged with poverty, And one day, Gladys came across a woman selling a young girl on the street for a few pennies. Gladys' heart was broken, and she took in the young girl herself. And then she took in another. And eventually, Gladys had over 100 orphans living under her roof. But things got even worse in China during the Second Sino-Japanese War. The Japanese had invaded China and they were raping and massacring civilians all along the way, Gladys' orphanage didn't stand a chance as the imperial forces occupied her village. So Gladys attempted to lead her orphans on a perilous journey across the mountains to the relative safety of the Cyan region. And after 27 long and frigid days in the open wilderness the ragged caravan of Gladys and her orphans finally made their destination. But it almost killed Gladys. She had suffered during this journey through typhus, pneumonia, fever, malnutrition, and exhaustion, but she had saved every one of those children under her care. Gladys Aylward was a legit hero, wasn't she? At a sickly four feet, ten inches tall, she wasn't exactly the Hollywood image of a superhero. And she certainly wasn't without her flaws and lapses in judgment now. Don't misunderstand. The Japanese, you see, had put a bounty on her head because she agreed to spy on them for the Chinese government. What was she thinking? But God chose the diminutive little innkeeper from London to save the day. God chose the diminutive little shepherd from Bethlehem to save the nation. And God has chosen the diminutive little you from Des Moines to do something great. So stop pretending to know where God's intending to go with your life. You have no idea to what role he is calling you. But whatever it is, you will not feel qualified if you do feel qualified, then you're probably not, your calling probably is not big enough. At the end of her life, Gladys said this about herself, My heart is full of praise that one so insignificant, uneducated, and ordinary in every way could be used to his glory for the blessing of his people in poor, persecuted China. That's God's anti-hero. No one else may think you're the right person for the job, but God doesn't look for superheroes. He chooses anti-heroes. It was a role David was born to play, and it's the role you were born to play as well. And we're going to look at this theme in the next several weeks as we explore the life of David You can't be the anti-hero, however, without getting some blood on your hands. So I'm going to encourage you to read 1 Samuel 17 this week and bring a friend next Sunday and get ready for a war. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you so much. It's so encouraging to look at this passage. And Lord, none of us check the boxes of superhero, Lord, but we can play the role of anti-hero, and that's who you choose. And we are so grateful for that this diminutive little church on the south side of Des Moines can be used to do things we could never dream of doing. Lord, if we think we can do it, we're not being called to something big enough. I pray, Lord, that we would stop pretending that we know where you're intending to go with our lives, with this church, that we would stop counseling you on what we are able or unable to do, what we're qualified for, what we're unqualified for. We will get out of the business of telling you what should happen. And God, you would make our role clear through the leading of the Holy Spirit. We would know what to do, that we would fill that role. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.